Hey there, friends. It's probably, I'm not trying to say nothing about Lucretia's prayer life, but it's, it's probably worth mentioning that these sermons are recorded, and you will be able to listen to it on our, uh, on our, what do you call it? Like a live, like our, uh, yeah, YouTube, iTunes page, whatever. So if you need to get, if it really starts going and you just need to get up and bail, I've had people walk out of sermons for worse reasons than that, so go right ahead. If you've been joining us for the last few weeks, we, you know we've been looking at a, going through a series called Grace on the Other Side. We're looking at the story of God's people, the Israelites, after they have been through a painful, a difficult time. They are now free, but they are still facing challenges, and God is continuing to provide more and more grace for them. And that grace is for us as well. So today we're going to be talking about an unexpected grace that God gives us. It is God's grace for us when our idols fail us. That's what we're going to be talking about today. God's grace allows our idols to fail us. First, what is an idol? The way that we often talk about it is we use this word to describe things in the world around us that tempt us to love them or pursue them in a way that begins to look like worship. There are things around us that we are tempted to treat almost like they are gods, and we call these idols. So sometimes idolatry is, is pretty obvious. Sometimes it's a little bit more subtle. I was in the grocery store the other day. I was waiting in line to check out. I looked down. There is a, uh, like a men's fitness magazine with a, a guy on the cover who is just massive, just like huge muscles, veins on veins, like enormous arms. He has what looks like like two or three dozen abs, like abs around the side, around the back. This magazine is presenting to me a vision of what my life could look like, something that maybe seems appealing, something I could be tempted to obsess over. I could maybe dedicate my life to trying to look like this guy. And in that way, maybe muscles would become an idol to me. So I'm looking at this magazine. Right next to the magazine is... A, a Snickers candy bar that looks like it weighs about 10 pounds. Like we are past, forget about family size, this is like a village-sized Snickers bar. It's not necessarily as obvious, but the Snickers bar is also trying to appeal to me. It's also telling me a story about what my life could look like. I could dedicate myself to pleasure. I could indulge anything that, that feels good. The Snickers bar is telling me basically, look, hey man, you, you've been having a rough time lately. Why don't you treat yourself? And in fact, it's saying to me, that's, the, that's actually the real substance of life. You put up with a lot of other things just to get those moments when you can treat yourself. And so I could maybe dedicate myself to the pursuit of my own pleasure. That could become an idol for me. So when we, when we think about idols in this way, what is often confusing for us is the way that these many idols relate to each other. So I I look at this magazine, I look at this candy bar, and I think to myself, come on society, like just pick a lane. I can't, I could conform in this way, or I could conform in that way, but I don't think I can do both at once. I haven't, I didn't buy the magazine, I don't know for sure, but I doubt that the secret to this guy's body was eating 10 pounds of nougat and caramel. 
We live in this culture that has so many different voices telling us different versions of what an ideal life looks like that we sometimes just feel caught in the contradictions. I meet a lot of people, including Christians, who just seem to be incredibly stressed by trying to serve a bunch of different idols at once. All of these false gods all pulling them in different directions, and they just feel stretched to the breaking point. We live in a, in a culture with so many versions of what this perfect life looks like that even as you try to narrow things down, you sometimes feel like it's inevitable that you will end up serving one of these things. And so you are just like trying to figure out the least terrible idol that you can worship. Sometimes I think on our worst days, even, even the church can fall into this trap. We, we end up telling you like a hundred different things that you ought to be doing with your life. And it just doesn't seem to add up into one life. It just doesn't seem to fit. So, I could worship this magazine. I could worship this candy bar. I can't do both at once. So what am I supposed to do? I mean, don't, don't even pretend like you don't know I didn't buy that candy bar. Like, let's not play around here. I mean, I, and don't think that I like, handed that out to a whole village or whatever. But that's me. That's my, that's my issues. What about you? Let's say that you are trying to follow Jesus. What do you do? How do you understand yourself in a world of a million different idols? So we're going to look at a passage from the story of the Israelites. This is a famous passage about an idol that they worshipped, a golden calf. And I think that this story helps us kind of understand a, a common thing that is going on beneath all of these contradictory idols and then helps redirect us towards God. First, let me just pray for us. Lord, we ask that you would be our true and living God today, that you would live in your word, you would be the one who speaks, you would be the one who creates, that you would be the one who transforms. In Jesus' name. So if you would like to follow along, we are looking at Exodus chapter 32. I'm not going to read the whole passage. Let me just say up front, I'm not going to answer all of the different questions that we might have about this, this passage I just want to highlight some relevant things. So Moses, the leader of the Israelites, he's up on this mountain. He goes there sometimes to meet with God. On one of these trips up the mountain, he has gone for a long time, and the Israelites start to get worried. So they tell Aaron, Moses' brother, they say, they ask him to make a replacement God for them. And Aaron's like, cool, I can do that. He says, give me all your gold rings and jewelry. He melts it all down. He makes it into a statue of a calf. As soon as the people see this golden calf, they start to worship it. And they say in verse 4, This, this is our God. This is the one who rescued us from Egypt. We tend to think of idols as kind of like a, a cultural trick that gets played on us. There are forces around us in the world that manipulate us or tempt us into following them. We, we believe that the problem is that the sinful world is luring us away from God. And I think this story in Exodus kind of reverses that thought a little bit. So here's the first point I want to take away from Exodus. That, that an idol is anything we make for ourselves to reassure us that we are good, safe, and secure. The world can feel lonely and frightening sometimes, and we are often secretly asking the question, am I good? Like, I, I don't feel good. Am I good? Am I doing life right? Am I moral? 
Am I responsible? Am I smart? Is this all leading somewhere? Is this going to turn out okay? For the Israelites, the golden calf doesn't make them anxious. The golden calf is the manifestation of all of their anxieties. Moses has been gone a long time. He was our leader. We're just kind of out here wandering in the desert. Are we good? Because if Moses like fell off a cliff or something, I don't think that we're good. I think we're in big trouble. If I feel alone, if I feel afraid, if I feel like I need to make myself okay, that's why I make idols. And for Moses and for many of the later prophets, they seem genuinely confused at this, like how silly this is. Like you literally just watched yourself make this calf out of gold. You literally just carved this idol out of wood. You saw yourself make it, and now you think it's a god? If it was a god, it would create you. It wouldn't need you to create it. It doesn't make any sense. But that is the story of all of our idols. That as much as we are tempted to serve them in their origin story, we created them to serve us, to reassure us that we're good. So I, I, didn't, I didn't invent the Snickers bar. I'm not that kind of historical genius. But I love to eat fat and sugar, and it does something in my brain. It soothes me for a little while. It distracts me from stress, makes me happy for like one to two minutes. If Snickers didn't exist, I would find some other candy. If candy didn't exist, I would find cakes or other sweets. I would make a recipe for a food that comforts me, that makes me happy for a minute. I also love being loved. I love being desired. I love it when people are attracted to me. It makes me feel valuable, worthwhile, important. And so if I wasn't trying to be a bodybuilder, I would find some other kind of beauty to objectify. I would try to look like someone else that a lot of people seem to love. I would try to be attractive to people in some other way. The candy bar, the magazine, they didn't actually create my anxiety. They are just reminders in a way that people can make a huge amount of money off of my anxieties by, by pretending to offer me the answer to a question. But my anxiety really just comes from living in a world that is broken, a world that has sin in it, a world where God can feel distant. And I can feel like I'm on my own, like the only God that I could depend on is one that I make for myself. I don't, I don't really want to spend a lot of time on this, but uh, I feel it sort of literally looming behind me. Let's talk about Yale for a second. Yale, Yale is an idol factory. It cranks out idols. But it is only an idol factory because it is first an anxiety factory. It takes a lot of nice, smart, hardworking people who have a lot of gifts and opportunities and advantages who don't really have a lot to worry about, and it gives them a ton to worry about. It is constantly saying to people, oh, you're definitely not good enough. Not as you are right now. You're, you're, not, you're not good, but you could be. And that's where idols come from. You could be good. Choose your idol. You could, be, you could be good if you win this award. You could accomplish this thing, get this grade, find this internship, get accepted to this grad school. Yale says to us, have, have you ever wondered whether you're good? Well, if you haven't, you should. Because you should be terrified. Because your life will be judged based on your success. You're, you're not good, but we can make you good. And even if you never think about Yale, even if you never set foot on Yale's campus, I'm sure there are forces in your life saying to you, oh, you're not good. But you could be. 
Meet this sales quota at work. Gain this promotion. Get your kids into this school. Dress this way. Look this way. Talk this way. Impress these people. And you could be good. And we take those things and we pursue them so eagerly. We obsess over them so much that we begin to worship them. We get confused. We start to really believe that a particular idol has power. Probably going to need those. Yeah. Don't try that on me, God. <laughs> we get to confuse. We start to think that these idols have power. We say to ourselves things like, oh, it's Yale's fault. Oh, it's, oh, it's my job's fault. Maybe if I just went to a different university. Maybe if I switch careers. Maybe you should. But, but don't think that you won't be able to take idolatry with you because it wasn't really in the in institution, it was in our hearts. And we have this weird, twisted, codependent relationship with idols. In our anxiety, we fashion a reward for ourselves. We make something out of our insecurity and then we pursue it as if it really has power to give us worth back. If that particular didn't, idol didn't exist, we, we would just make a different one. Idolatry is just what we do when we try to live life alone and scared about whether we will be okay. Lord, try to get rid of that page. Let me just take a note for a moment that it is no accident that this calf is made out of gold. It is no accident that Jesus says things like, you cannot serve both God and money. Money is such a powerful idol because it is a very flexible God. It can be anything you want. It can mean anything. If I gave you $10 million today, what would your life look like by next week? Would you, would you quit your job and just chill? Would you buy a mansion or a purse or sneakers? Would you start your own charitable foundation? Would you start dating a supermodel? Would you live life exactly as you live it right now, but just with less anxiety about the future? Money can be any kind of idol you want. If your biggest anxiety is about happiness or status or righteousness or security, money says, oh, I got you. I can make you good. We may know on some level that money doesn't solve all of our problems, but still, it just seems inevitable that the first step to getting life right is to see five or six or seven or eight figures in that bank account. So whether it is the pursuit of money or something else, what are you putting yourself through right now that you wouldn't be doing if you really believed you didn't have anything to prove? What are you putting yourself through right now that you wouldn't be doing if you knew you have nothing to prove? So Moses is up on the mountain with God. God says to him, hey, you better check on this people down there. You are not going to believe what they are up to right now. Moses comes down. He finds the people worshiping a golden calf. He gets pretty mad. He gets real mad. He takes the calf, he smashes it into pieces. He takes those pieces, he smashes those into pieces. 
until there is just a, a dust. And then in verse 20, this is a strange little detail, he mixes all this gold dust with water and he makes the people drink it. Hashtag golden calf challenge. What is going on here? This is a very strange response, it seems to me. Moses is like, oh, oh, so, so this is your God now, huh? This, this, this is your God, this is your redeemer, this is, this is your provider. This lumpy yellow cow, this is your alpha and omega. Oh, okay, 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 all right, fine. If you're so confident in this God, why don't you drink him? And you're like, what is going on here? Remember Daniqua's sermon from a couple weeks ago? All along the way, God has been providing the Israelites with bread from heaven, with fresh water from a rock. God has been dependable over and over and again, but in a given moment, when the Israelites freak out, they still believe that they have been abandoned, that they will have to depend on themselves. They need to make an idol that will guarantee their security. And so Moses says to them, fine, drink up. Try depending on this golden calf. See how that tastes. So here's the second point I want to make about this passage, that it is good for us whenever our idols turn out to be so unsatisfying. When we have obsessed over some reward, some approval, some affection for so long, we have depended on it to make us good and then it fails, it can be pretty devastating. We have invented like a whole life stage. We call it a midlife crisis dedicated to that moment when we discovered that either we have failed to gain what we wanted or we have gained it, and it really isn't that great. I don't know if this is, their, this is still their slogan. I don't, I don't know. But for a while, Snickers used to have these commercials that just said, satisfied? Question mark? I guess the implication being that like, if you stopped and asked yourself, am I satisfied? That like, somehow you would discover that having a Snickers is the answer to that question. <laughs> Spoiler alert. No one who has ever been really hungry, who hasn't eaten all day, has ever eaten a 10-pound Snickers bar and been like, mm, that hit the spot. I'm good to go now. Where's the starting line on this marathon? Let's, let's get it. Trust me, if Snickers is the only thing you eat, you are going to feel like a garbage can. If you think Snickers is going to satisfy, you are going to be very disappointed. Have you ever had a friend who got really into fitness They're working out, they're getting healthy, they're looking good, but the more that they get fit, the more they discover things about their bodies that they hate. They're like, ugh, my my quadriceps are so asymmetrical. And you're like, what? What are you talking about? They're like, no, seriously. It's embarrassing. My 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 left leg is one inch thicker around than my right leg. I can't even wear shorts outside anymore. You're like, what what is going on? It makes no sense, bro. You look great. You look fine. No one one would ever notice that. Why are you even measuring your legs? Idols always fail us in the end. It is never enough. You spend your whole life pursuing them, and then they let you down because in the end, they are just a fiction you invented, hoping you would find something to satisfy you. Idolatry is a result of a life where we try to depend entirely on ourselves when we are trying so desperately to prove ourselves. And it's painful when idols fail us, and yet we need it. We need that. We need to see that it is really is hopeless to be satisfied apart from God. Try drinking your God. 
Does that quench your thirst in the desert? Does that, does that golden calf smoothie, does that hit the spot for you? How does that taste? Was it worth it? Or does it feel, does it take water and does it turn it like chalk in your mouth? You gag on it. It is completely disgusting because that's what it feels like to live your life trying to depend on an idol. It is the worst. If that's what an idol tastes like, then maybe you should turn back to a God who fed you all along the way, who wants to give you something really life-giving. So what God are you force-feeding yourself right now? What do you keep doing over and over that is deeply unsatisfying to you, almost disgusting to you, and yet you keep telling yourself that the secret is to do it more or better or harder? Last thought. The alternative to life depending on ourselves is life depending on God. Which also means that the alternative to life alone is life with each other, life with the church. The grace that God gives us as an antidote to idolatry is one another. The church together reminding each other that God is enough. If you were following along in Exodus 32, I, I, I kind of skipped over a part that I want to go back to. Moses is on the mountain. When the people make the golden calf, God says to Moses, hey, you better go check on those people. And God also says to Moses, I am over these people. They are so ungrateful. I'm going to wipe them out and start over again. And Moses says in verses 11 through 13, God, remember you love this people. Remember your promise to bless them. And God is convinced there's a, there's a lot to get tangled up in, in this passage. Would God really have destroyed Israel? What does it mean that God changes his mind? Personally, I, I don't think that there's quite as much substance to those questions as we imagined. There's, there's more to say there, but I just want to focus on one thing for now. That Moses himself was as much a part of the, the grace that God gave to the Israelites as anything. Moses is the one given to the people to keep reminding both them and even God in a way, hey, God loves Israel. God loves these people. These are his precious people. They are not good. They are good, not because they ever really do good, but because God declared it from the beginning. God is determined to treat them as good. God is determined to make them good, and God will remain true to his promises. So here's one example of how I see this, this grace of other people worked out in our lives. Some of you, I'm going to point her out to embarrass, your, to embarrass her. Some of you know our friend Rebecca Lewis sitting in the front here. Rebecca is just about to graduate from law school. Congratulations, Rebecca. When I first met Rebecca almost three years ago, it, uh, she had, you had just become a Christian just a few years earlier, and she was still early in her journey of trying to follow Jesus. And one of the first things I remember Rebecca saying to me is that she loved Jesus, she believed in Jesus, but it seemed like not a lot had changed in her life since she started following Jesus. She was still kind of doing the same work, still on the same career path, she still had the same goals and objectives as before. And that kind of troubled her. So she was re reflecting with me this last week that she, she kind of knew in some like intellectual way 
that some of the rewards that, that the law school, as an example, was presenting to her were idols for her. But it, it was just so hard to imagine an alternative. What else is there? And so rather than just immediately kind of dropping out of law school to figure it out, Rebecca made a really intentional effort to spend a lot of time outside of the law school around a lot of Christians all over New Haven. There, were, there was a home group at ECV, but there were also people at St. John's Episcopal. There were people in the Catholic Church in town, all kinds of different Christians who were simply asking her to depend on God. They were just telling her over and over again that the way she would navigate all of these potential idols was to hear and believe over and over again in the grace and goodness of God. For me, as Rebecca's friend, it's, it's just been a huge blessing to see what God has been doing. There is stuff that mattered a lot to her at the start of her law school career that she just doesn't really care about anymore. And as she has been discerning where God is calling her next, she has been less and less concerned right now about a particular job and more and more concerned about pursuing an intentional community, about being around fellow believers that, that will remind her of things like God's love for the poor, that, that God's kingdom is upside down, that that it's people out at the fringes who are more at the center of God's activity, that all of this is kind of encompassed in God's love. And as she was reflecting this last week, she could have, at one point, she could have just smashed one idol, but then immediately started to build another idol, even unintentionally. She could have given up one standard of success for another standard. And instead, for her to really depend on God has been to have no particular plan, no big strategy for her future, to simply learn how to listen, how to be present with God. I love that. I love that so much. God is not just a better idol than all the other idols. He is the death of idolatry. He is not one more way to make ourselves good. He is the freedom of life with all God's people, knowing that we have already been declared good in the death and resurrection of Jesus. There is nothing left to prove. God loves us, and God will do exactly what he promises to do. So I just want to leave you with a few questions to reflect on. As I've been, ref as I've been talking, where do you find yourself most worried about whether you are okay? What are you living with right now only because you cannot see an alternative? How can you invite God into your fear, into the part of yourself where you are most likely to make idols? One answer to that question is to be here to be here with God's people, to share this anxiety, to share it with someone else, to receive prayer, to pray together, to bring it to God together. And so be reminded of God's love for you. So as part of that movement towards God and towards one another, we are going to take communion together. If you do not have a communion cup available, raise your hand. Someone will bring one to you.
We eat bread and we drink grape juice at communion because Jesus once sat at a table and said of this bread and this cup at this table, he said, this is my body. This is my blood. We are part of Jesus' life, his own doing then and his own work now. Whenever we are in communion, we take communion together because people of God, this is your Redeemer. This is your provider. If you want to become someone who depends on this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, drink this, God. Let me pray for us. Lord, we want to become people who live with you at the very center of our lives. Lord, we want to live in that freedom, that freedom that you give us to depend on no one but you and so become ourselves who you have made us to be. Lord, let us live into that freedom. Let us share that freedom with other people. Let us share that freedom with this city. Lord, let your kingdom come and let this, your blood and body, be our entryway into a whole participation in your justice, in your mercy, in your goodness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. Let me invite our worship team back up as we pray together. Lord, we want to put you back at the center of our lives by worship, through worship, through worship together, through a worship that incorporates everyone gathered here and beyond, a worship that catches up this whole city into your life. Lord, let us set aside whatever else we bring with us to just be present with you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.